As we come now before God's word, if you'd like to read with me, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah in chapter 37. This is here, right, right in the middle of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 37. <clears throat> and before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, you are the God in the heavens, the only God, and you do all that you please. Lord, would it please you now to open your word to us. Show us your word and your truth, yourself even in this, in a way that would stir in us worship and praise to you. Help us, guide us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Isaiah uh, in chapter 37. I want to begin here in verse 14, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. I know this is quite a number of verses, but, uh, but we can handle it. Lean forward. If you don't process it all at first, that's okay, but, but try. Try. Um, Isaiah chapter 37, beginning in verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hands of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then Isaiah, the son of Amaz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you, Assyria, mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my chariots I've gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to the remotest height in its fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank water to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. 
while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it's grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this will be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that, and then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat of their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharzezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of God. Now, did you get all that? <laughs> I, I, I know that this is a lot to process, and if you were overwhelmed, let me help us out by zooming into just one verse. I think we can do this. The verse I want us to focus on, because it's the center of a lot of this, is verse 26. Let me read it again. This is the Lord now speaking. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass. This morning, we want to look at what he means when he says that. And so we're going to focus on the doctrine here of predestination. Boy, there's a word. The doctrine of predestination, that's our focus this morning. Now, before we can even get to that, we need to figure out what's going on here. Let's put a little bit of skin on these bones and set it back in the context we're in. You'll remember, if you were here with us last week, that the book of Isaiah can really be divided into two parts or two acts, like two acts of a play, that the first half is about groaning and the second half is about glory. Or we could say the first half is about God's judgment and the second about God's hope. Where we are now in these verses, there's, there's a little four-chapter uh, ch four arc, chapters 
uh, 36, 37, 38, and 39 is the space in between those two acts, what I'm calling the intermission between the acts. In this space between, what's happening here is that the world empire of Assyria is on the march. Assyria has attacked and destroyed and exiled most of the people of Israel, most of the people of God. All that's left is one little remnant, one tribe, the tribe of Judah. And last week, we watched as the high-level Assyrian official comes in to threaten Judah in the capital city of Jerusalem to try to get them to surrender to the Assyrians. Now, ding, ding, this is round two. Everyone went back to their corners, and now they come back into the middle here, and the king of Assyria sends a message with the same threat. And so now at the beginning of the section we've read, the king of Judah, Hezekiah, takes this message and walks it into the house of the Lord. Hezekiah knows that they are in trouble. And so he prays and lays all this out before God. The bulk of the rest of the chapter that we just read, uh, excuse me, is the Lord's response then to Hezekiah's prayer what, I, what uh, the Lord is saying back to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah. And he speaks about Assyria, but to encourage Hezekiah. And you'll notice, if you look carefully here, that the word of the Lord to Hezekiah is not just, I will save you, although he will, he will save them. It's more than just, I will save you. His word to them is this, Assyria is not in charge. That's the main word. Assyria is not in charge, even though they think they are. That really, I, the Lord, am the one who brought all of this to pass, because from days long ago, I determined it. From days of old, I planned it. I have predestined all of what you were watching. Now, to clarify... When we're talking about the Lord predestining things, this is more than just God making a grocery list of things he plans to pick up. I need celery. I need, who eats celery? That's not the first thing that would be on that list. Talk to me about that afterwards if you eat celery. Uh, It's more than just a list of things that, that he plans someday to do. The words here literally uh, mean when he says, from long ago, he says, from long ago, I did this. From long ago, I made this. From days of old, I formed this. It's as if he has already done it in days long past, and now we are just seeing it play out. So when God predestines things, it's not only that he looks ahead and sees what might happen. It's not just that he has a map or some sort of game plan. It's that he plans and carries out that plan. He does all of this for his good purposes. That is God's predestination. Now, when we hear the word predestination, often it's referring to a particular type of God's predestining. Often it's referring to God's electing or or choosing and saving a particular people from their sin. 
So he predestines not only things, but he predestines people. And those who are predestined by God are the ones that God specially calls, those whom God regenerates, bringing them from death to life. These are the ones that God produces faith and repentance in their hearts so that they will trust in Jesus and embrace Jesus as the Savior of their sin. We heard this already in our service during our our response to, to our prayer of confession in the assurance section. We heard from Ephesians 1 that Christians are ones who are chosen in Christ. They are ones who have the redemption of the blood of Jesus. They have the forgiveness of sin by Jesus' grace. They have adoption as sons. All of this is predestined before the foundation of the world. And these people are not chosen because they're better, nicer, prettier. God predestines people for his own glory which means it is all entirely in his hands. Our salvation from beginning to forever after is entirely in the hands of God. Predestination then often refers to God saving a particular people. But it's more than that. Predestination also refers to God destining all things. We see this put poetically in the Psalms, in my personal favorite Psalm, Psalm 139. Let me read just a few verses here. Psalm 139, verse 13, I'll begin. Uh, David says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Here's what we want. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That's kind of a funny way to say it, yes? If I can put it in a different way, while in the womb, says David, before I have even taken a breath of the outside air, my every day has been written in your book. The day of my first breath is determined And the day of my last breath is determined, and every day in between. All of it is already marked down according to God's plan. These days are set in ink according to God's good purposes. And I don't know about you, but I find this comforting. I find it comforting, the thought that God has predestined every particular day of my life. But even as I say that, I am aware and know that it does not feel comforting to everyone. 
Uh, even to many Christians, this can be a very challenging doctrine. It's a hard doctrine in some ways. It's a doctrine that will ruffle our feathers to think that God determines all things. Uh, but we should expect that the Bible will sometimes ruffle our feathers. To think about our lives as predestined can sometimes feel surreal. You know, like something out of a, out of a sci-fi novel or, 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 you know, like a time travel movie. There was a, a movie, a cult classic when I was in college. I won't mention the name of the movie because, well, the movie's odd. Uh, but it was very popular when I was in college. And there's a scene in this particular movie where there's a, um, a teenager, I think, and his dad sitting watching TV and the, and the son sees this beam come out of his dad's chest, like this sort of silver wavy thing. It comes out of his chest and heads toward the fridge. And then just a few seconds after he sees it kind of stretch out, the dad stands up and follows, he can't see, the dad can't see the beam, but follows it to the fridge, gets a drink and follows the beam all the way back to his chair. And then the son sees this beam kind of bounce across in front of the TV, and then here comes his sister following the exact path of the beam. And then the son sees a beam come out of his own chest, and he stands up and starts to follow it, because what else would you do? This is a, it, a, an odd way to think about it, as if, like, my path is somehow already set, and here I go. This is a strange way, really, to think about our lives. So if you've ever watched, if you're really hardcore sports and you really want to watch a game but you have to work and so you record it on your DVR, the football game, anyone ever actually done this? And so, you, you know, don't tell me, don't tell me the score, you know, you try to, to keep everyone from, from, from spoiling it for you, but you go home and the game's already happened, but you sit down to watch it and it feels like it's happening as you're watching it, but we know that it's already been recorded. The game is already over. There's already a winner that's been set. It just feels like it's happening now as I'm seeing it all play out. Predestination is a brain burner. <laughs> it's a brain burner to figure out how, how all of this works. And if we dwell on this too long to try to figure out all the mechanics, if we sit there too long, it, it will lead us into some sort of you know, philosophical vortex that the Bible doesn't lead us into. You know, if we sit with it too long, some people accuse those who advocate for doctrines of predestination. Say, they say, oh, well, that just makes us into puppets. That just makes us into robots. That just makes us into little chess pieces that God moves around. But that is not how the Bible portrays us. What the Lord says here is true. From long ago, he has determined it. From days of old, he has planned it. That's true. But, but, the fact that God has predestined all things should not make us just shrug and go, ah, well, I mean, there's nothing we can do about what's happening now. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Just kind of roll with it. That's not the idea. Predestination does not nullify 
the effect of our actions. It does not nullify the effect of our actions. There's a mystery how all of this works together, but we know that our lives have real effect still, even in the midst of God's predestined work. So in the rest of our time, let me just highlight three things that we see here that still have real effect. The first, we still see the effect of prayer. We still see the effect of prayer. You can see it if you follow in the text. Hezekiah, at the beginning of the section we we, we read, has this huge prayer to the Lord. It's got this soaring language about the loftiness of God and his kingship over all things. And the response at the end of it in verse 21 is, because you have prayed to me, now I want you to know this. Do you hear the effect? Because you've prayed, now hear, hear this. Also, in the next chapter that we won't get to read uh, today, Hezekiah is about to die because of an illness. And so he prays to the Lord. That the Lord would heal him. And the Lord adds 15 years to his life. So it's not as if the Lord goes, all right, Hezekiah prayed for extra life. Let me find the book of Hezekiah. Okay, pull it off the shelf, flip to the end. Oh, he's supposed to end at 65? 80. I'll I'll give him an extra 15. We know that all of his days are already written according to God's predestined plan. But the way that God predestined those extra 15 years is that Hezekiah would seek him for them. That he would pray to be relieved from his illness and then God would grant that prayer. In other words, a way for us to put this is that we do not pray in spite of God's predestined plan, but we pray inside of God's predestined plan. We actually count on God's power. We actually count on God's purposes in all things while we pray. We see this uh, many places in the scriptures, but especially in the first century, as the disciples, after Jesus has now ascended back to the Father, are facing persecution, they bank on the sovereignty of God in this as their drive to pray. In uh, Acts chapter 4, what's happening here is they're facing some persecution. Verse uh, 28, uh, it's in the middle of the sentence, but to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In other words, they've said, Lord, you have already predetermined all of the life of Christ, that Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and Israel would gather together to kill him so that his cross would save us. Now, Lord, we want you to use that same predestining plan to help us speak boldly, to help us to produce healing and signs of wonder so that others would know you. And God granted their prayer. There is still real effect of prayer in the midst of God's predestined plan. That's the first. We see the effect of prayer. The second in our text we still see the effect of 
sin. We still see real effect of sin. Verse 29. Isaiah mentions that because you, Assyria, have raged against me, because you have done these things, I'm now going to put a hook in your nose and drag you back home. There's still a real effect of what they have done. The rage here is a mockery of God. They've mocked God with their pride. We see earlier in this section in verses 24 and 25, this lofty, pumped-up version of themselves when they talk about all that they have done. Look at what I did. I conquered all of these things with my chariots. I brought down the forests of Lebanon, and I drew up the depths of the rivers of Egypt. This is all my doing. It's a very pompous claim of Assyria. And in response to that, you can almost hear the Lord laugh. You haven't heard? Haven't you heard? All that was my doing. All of this I planned long ago, he says. You, Assyria, you are a tool in my hand, a tool of my judgment. He says it multiple places in Isaiah. One is in, back in chapter 10, verse uh, 5. The Lord says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury, and against a godless nation I send him. Against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and tread them down like mire of the streets, but he does not so intend. His heart doesn't so think. It's in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. He's saying to Assyria, you're marching around with your chariots, with your people, with your armies, and you're seizing all these nations, and you think all of this is your own doing, but you don't even recognize that you are the axe in my hand. The fact that you, Assyria, are doing my predestined work does not excuse you or nullify the effect of your sin. A good way to think about this is what C.S. Lewis uh, once said. He wrote this, You will certainly carry out God's purpose however you act. But it makes a difference to you whether you act like Judas the betrayer or John the beloved. There is still a real effect of sin in the midst of God's predestined plan. Finally, The third real effect we see, we see the effect of daily living. The effect of daily living. The Lord says here at the end of Isaiah's big comment in all of this discussion, he says, look, I've planned that Assyria would bring judgment upon these cities, that Assyria would ruin them. I've also planned that Assyria would be turned back and Jerusalem would be saved. And the sign of all of this, Jerusalem, is that you're going to spend two years eating whatever naturally grows from the ground, whatever is already there, whatever you can pull together. But in the third year, I want you to sow again. I want you to plant again. I want you to harvest the fields again and eat of the fruit of that. 
I want you to go back to carrying on your daily living, and that is the way that I have determined to care for you. The fact that the Lord determines our days does not mean we don't fill our days still with daily living, with good things even, with, with work and, and school and parenting or grandparenting and laundry and breakfast and date nights and all the ups and downs that go with all of these things. We do all of these things because they really do matter. And God's plan for them doesn't undermine their value. In fact, that's the thing that upholds their value. We still see a real effect of daily living even in the midst of God's predestined plan. Now, all of that said, Isaiah's point when he brings the word of the Lord here is not to tell Hezekiah, go out and do this stuff. He's not saying to him, Hezekiah, go pray and seek the Lord. Hezekiah, go shun sin. Hezekiah, go be faithful in your daily living. That's not the point for us either as we read this, although I hope we do those sorts of things. This is part of God's goodness to us. His point, though, is to show Hezekiah that the Lord is in control of everything. Everything. The Lord's in control of all of it. Whether a city is brought to a heap or whether that city stands defended, whether you are going out or whether you are coming in, all of it the Lord planned from long ago and he now brings it to pass. So when we say that the Lord is God and the only God, we mean it. And when we say that the Lord is enthroned, above all things, above the angels and the cherubim, that he's the king of all the kingdoms of the earth. We mean it. And when, when God says, I have planned to save this city for my sake so that the earth will know that I am the Lord, he really means it. The effect of these things as we see that God is really in control of all things, that he has really predestined all things, the effect is that we would be humbled before him. And as we are humbled, we would find rest in knowing that the Lord is really God. As we wrap this up, we're headed to the end here. But I just want to mention that the most striking part about this whole event is how it ends. You know, most of the section that we've read is people talking. Isaiah's praying, uh, uh, or uh, Hezekiah's praying, Isaiah's bringing the word of the Lord. And so here we're, we're hearing the word of God. But in the last three verses of the chapter, we finally get to see the act of God, the acts of the Lord. It's just three verses. It's just a couple of sentences about, about what happened, the result of the threat against, of this giant Assyria against this tiny remnant Judah and how that played out. If you look, here's what occurred. The angel of the Lord comes and strikes down 185,000 in the middle of the night. In the morning, they wake up and see their camp full of bodies and they hightail it back home. When they get home, king, uh, the king of Assyria goes into his temple to worship his own God where his own kids murder him. 
the end. I mean, it's just a very extremely dramatic set of events. There's lots going on that, and, and let, yet the way that it's described is almost sort of anticlimactic. Like, draw that. I want to hear more about how, what actually, what is going on there? It's, it's as if there's this huge build and build and build, and they're threatening and, and squeezing and squeezing, and then it's just all over like that, like almost a breath. It's as if the author is telling us, reminding us, that on one hand, the threat feels very real. But on the other hand, it's not even a real threat at all. I mean, this is not a contest between good and evil. We're not just waiting to see who wins. God wins. Every time he wins because he is really the Lord. That's the story of the Bible from from the creation of Genesis to the new creation of Revelation. The Lord has predestined all the pages of his book. He has written it in his own hand. So have you not heard that I determined it long ago, that I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass? In light of this, Christian, be humbled before God and find rest there. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that you are the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. You are God and there is no other. And Lord, you accomplish all of your purposes, all of them. Help us in the midst of these hard things to praise you, to live faithfully to you, and Lord, to trust you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.